A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. Now, you might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. And well, yes, then you'd be right. But then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. After a few weeks following the party conference schedule, we're getting back to something a bit like normal now. And today we're going to be joined by the Conservative member of the Welsh Senate, Sam Rowland, who is the member for North Wales. Sam will share his story of coming to faith and coming into politics and how the two intertwine. But before that, this is the 100th episode of A Mucky Business. And my head spins when I think about what has happened in the world since we started in January 2021. COVID, three prime ministers, Ukraine, endless scandals in Parliament, a refugee crisis, the death of a monarch, a new monarch, ongoing climate crisis, and now the unspeakable horrors in Israel and Gaza. It was good to see our main party leaders agreeing this week that the murders of Jewish people were the evil acts of terrorists, that we stand with Israel, and that we stand also with innocent civilians of all backgrounds in Gaza and elsewhere as this tragedy unfolds. At this time of heightened passions, as 24-hour media and social media spew out competing claims, it is a reminder that one of the most important things Christians can bring to our politics is truth. And yet, emerging technologies wrongly used provide even greater threats to truth, particularly the growing technology of artificial intelligence and deep fakes. This is not only a future threat, but a present reality. Last week at Labour's party conference, audio was shared on Twitter of Keir Starmer swearing and abusing his staff. Except he didn't. It was quickly refuted as AI generated, and upon second hearing, you could tell it wasn't a natural recording. Encouragingly, several Conservative MPs recognised this too and encouraged people not to share it around, but not before many, including some MPs, had shared it, believing it to be true, maybe hoping it was true. But it gave a glimpse into the very real emergence of deep fakes, AI-generated audio and even video of people saying and even doing things that never happened. In 2017, researchers at the University of Washington managed to fake a video of President Obama speaking to a camera, it is strange, even funny, but it doesn't take much imagination to imagine how with some time and technological advancements, it could be made to be very convincing. In the recent Slovakian election, audio clips emerged of meetings between the leader of the opposition and a leading liberal journalist speaking about doubling the price of beer and discussing how to rig the election and cheat. The audio was listened to by hundreds of thousands of people and a conservative politician shared it widely. The opposition lost the election, but the recording was a fake. And maybe another danger of deep fakes in politics is not just that they can falsely incriminate, but they can provide feasible deniability for people who really have done wrong. So alleged scandals could be deep fakes and alleged deep fakes could be real scandals. The technology is becoming more realistic all the time. In war, the truth has always been distorted and muddied. But now we have technology that makes lies more believable and more shareable. Fake news has been part of the vocabulary for a while. Indeed, it's been part of the armory for some politicians. But deep fakes bring a whole new depth to fake news. The toxic polarisation of politics will exacerbate the problem. 
Why should you believe the other side when they say it's a deep fake? After all, they would say that, wouldn't they? It would be so much better and more politically convenient if that deep fake was the truth. So if you thought trust in politics couldn't sink lower, think again. And if you thought facts couldn't become blurrier, think again. What to believe? Who to turn to for the truth? Well, we know there is only one who sees it all. In Genesis 16, Hagar, a pregnant, enslaved woman in the desert, running away from mistreatment in Abram and Sarai's household, is the first person to give God a name. She describes him as Elroy, the God who sees, because he hears and sees her desperate cry for help and promises a future for her and her unborn son. Though we may not always be able to discern the truth, we can be assured of these things, that our God sees and cares deeply about every injustice and remembers every lie, that he is close to brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, and that he is faithful to his promises, which are good news for the poor, the oppressed and the captive. Jesus Christ, who calls himself the way, the truth and the life, is not threatened or surprised by AI or fake news. Hebrews 13 verse 8 declares that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. So let's call on him for help and for wisdom to navigate the treacherous and uncertain world ahead. As we follow Jesus, the call remains the same. The command to love your neighbour as yourself, to bless your enemy, to turn the other cheek, remain the most radical ever given. It could only be given by a God who would enter a broken world full of evil and pain and die out of love for us when we were still his enemies. Politics remains a way that he will use his followers to be salt and light, full of truth and grace, and to bring justice and serve our communities. There has never been a more important time for Christians to be in the mix of politics at every level and to bring with us a determined allegiance to the truth, even if it damages us politically. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. So to our guest, Sam Rowlands. He's the member of the Welsh Senate for North Wales. Sam, welcome. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, I'm, I'm well, thank you. How are you, Tim? I'm great. And I'm I'm really grateful to you for being, being with us. And let's begin, as we often do, in just exploring a little bit about how you came to believe in Jesus. Yeah, well, it wasn't a dramatic kind of road to Damascus uh, moment for me. Uh, one of those fairly uh, usual stories, I guess, for someone who's brought up in a in a, in a church life, because my my parents are church ministers. Um, I had the regular routine of uh, church twice on a Sunday, prayer meeting on a Thursday, and some sort of a home group on a on a Wednesday uh, that many uh, people experience. And I do remember at a very early age, probably around eight years old, um, making a, a commitment to follow Jesus, um, and very sincere um, and, and very, um, yeah, very true. Um, but then I also remember um, as later on as a teenager, I guess, recommitting that and um, seeking to, to follow Jesus in everything that I, I do and did. And um, so no great dramatic moment. Um, there's, there's no um, big redemption story that, that kind of feels like um, some some people have, which in some ways I, I, I kind of um, have a level of um, jealousy is wrong. Mm. Um, but it's a, um, yeah, a, a, a fairly straightforward story um, of, of coming to faith. And I think you, you, you put your finger on something there. Cause I think there is perhaps in our circle sometimes too much of a veneration of the incredibly dramatic um conversion stories and and they, they can be really encouraging to hear them um but in the end a simple faith of an eight-year-old 
is is more than ample um, to enter the enter the kingdom. So thanks for sharing that, Sam. Now, your, your entry into politics, um, that also kind of came through the church too, didn't it? Yeah, in, in a way, you're right. Um, a member of um, the church that I um, attend and still attend um, is actually currently still a member here in, in the Senate. And um, so this was... And um, back in two thousand and eight, so yeah, fifteen years ago now, he he encouraged me to to stand for my local council elections, and um, I did, and uh, I managed to get elected as a twenty-one year old, uh, both onto my town council and to my county uh, borough council, and um, didn't really, let's be honest, didn't have much of a clue of what uh, I was I was doing at the time, um, but managed to to fumble my way through, and um, I, I stayed on that council for. For fourteen years, in the end, and won three elections there. Mm. Um, but I think that the, the, yeah, the point there is, I, I just gave it a go and um, was willing to put the work in and um, and genuinely, sorry, I sound a bit flippant, yeah. but, but genuinely wanting to make a difference in the place that I I live, and um, and that was the the sort of um, yeah inspiration there, I guess as well. Now you you were a council for all those years. You were the leader of the unitary council in Conway, which is responsible for a, a vast range of of services, as well as being a, a ward councillor. You also had a kind of demanding uh, role in your full time career as well. Tell us a little bit about your career, and then how did you balance all that? Yeah, it was a really uh, tricky uh, balance actually. I remember my Twitter handle for years. I had a little description which um, kind of talked about a bit what I did, and it was dot 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 balancing. <laughs> uh, because it was always always a juggling act. Um, so you're right. I, um, as a, as a normal councillor, I guess, I eventually ended up uh, leading uh, the local authority. And as you say, for councils in Wales, they're responsible for funding our schools, funding our social care, and then everything that you expect a council to do around bins and roads and all that sort of usual stuff as well. And at the same time, um, I was um, I was working for a, for a bank for for ten years within credit risk, um, which required a lot of a lot of work as you'd expect as well and that was a really difficult time sometimes to know which which way to go in terms of pursuing a, a career uh, with a bank where you're often the the way to progress that is to actually move away from places like north wales move to places like london or, or elsewhere um, but they were really good with me and they had in place what's called a public services policy which encouraged people to either be a, a governor or a special constable or even um, a member of the local council which enabled me to balance both these things out as best as possible now, having served as a, uh, a member of the Senate now for, uh, what, two and a half years, um, you've been a council leader. My council leader likes to remind me that he's far more powerful than I am as an MP. Is he right? W were you more powerful as a council leader than you are as an opposition member in the Senate? Um, it, it, the truth is, probably are. Um, and the truth is that you, um, you you can feel like you're making more of a distant difference for the patch that you perhaps live in and you have a, your heart is really in it. Um, so uh, certainly in terms of a, um, a back bench or a, an opposition um, member, that, that is that is true. I've, I've often likened it to either being a star striker for your local football team. It's a bit like being the, uh, the council leader. And then being a, in opposition in, in place like the Senate, you're like a squad member of Manchester City, where the chances of doing something um, more significant, I guess, are there. But it's perhaps tougher to get to that point to make that difference. But the opportunities are much bigger um, versus a star striker for for real football club, for example. Now tell me, you know, during this time you're on the council, looking maybe to stand for the Senate, 
how did your faith have an impact on the choices that you made, both in your career um, with the bank, but also politically? Yeah, there was um, really interesting um, question, actually, um, because like in any part of politics, there's, there's real down times, really difficult times. I, I actually got um, sacked from being on the cabinet of my council at one point, um, which makes you question everything mm. you're doing in terms of pursuing some sort of um, politics. And and I, I also, I, I ran in 2016 uh, for the, the Senate then, and I, I lost by just 700 votes uh, for an election at that point. And again, another moment where you kind of question, what is all this uh, about and you feel your faith and um, real uh, coming through at those moments perhaps when when you're at your lowest um, and you, you kind of think that this is a thing that you should be doing and you, you sort of believe that this is the the, the the road that you should be walking and when when the twists and turns in that road um, are um, not what you expect and very difficult to handle it does make a question um, but it, basically, it brings you back to the foundation uh, of why you do what you do. So I've really felt my faith in those moments. But in terms of perhaps um, the challenge on my faith in terms of policy or a direction of travel, I haven't always found it that difficult, uh, which is perhaps not what people always expect. Those big sort of moral um, dilemmas perhaps haven't been there to the extent. I think because what we have in the UK is a foundation actually where a lot of decision making is based on a real good heritage of of faith actually and the vast majority of people i interact with want to do the right thing for the place they represent and you know our good civil servants and our council officers or those employed within sort of public service the the hearts are there to to serve and the clues in the title and uh, which makes a which makes it a lot easier in terms of uh, moral decisions and and um, there's perhaps a difficult choice at times a mucky business with Tim Farron. We're joined by Sam Rowlands, the member of the Welsh Senate for North Wales. Uh, Sam, now you were elected in 2021 to the Senate. Uh, now explain a little bit about how you were selected as a Conservative candidate. Because first of all, you are a, a, a member of the Senate as a list member, aren't you, from the North Wales constituency, which includes nine parliamentary constituencies. So it's, it's obviously huge. First of all, what was it like covering all that ground to win your selection? Yeah, it's, it's a different system here in Wales, perhaps, where most people might be used to. Same system, actually, what's in, in the Scottish Parliament. Mm. Uh, for those political geeks amongst, amongst <laughs> us, it's called the, the, the De Haunt system. Um, uh, and I, I, as you say, represent nine constituencies. It's actually around 700,000 people. Um, wow. It takes me two hours to get across from one uh, side of my region to the to the other. Um, so the trick with um, my type of election on a proportional basis is, as you say, is getting selected in the first place by the relevant party. Um, and in, with my party, that process um, yeah, starts fairly early on in in trying to ensure the members of my party are, are aware of who I am and what I do. Being a leader of a, of a council um, certainly helped that because um, for my party in Wales, it's unusual to have us uh, leading uh, much at all, actually. Uh, so a council um, was quite a, quite un unusual. I was only, only myself and one of the person in Wales who were in that um, position. So I had a profile. Uh, members knew what I was about. Um, so, um, yeah, the... the the tension, I guess, was with uh, an incumbent who'd been uh, a member of the Senate here and still continues to be a member of the Senate here for, for a long time. So that's the slight uh, the challenge, I guess, amongst that. 
Um, but there is, I don't know how much time we want to talk about this, but there is a, a new system coming in place in Wales where this will be the norm. Um, mm. uh, it hasn't passed legislation yet here, um, but it's likely to happen where everyone will be elected on a proportional representation basis, which throws up all, all sorts of uncertainties, uh, both as a, a member, but also for the, the public as well. And that is interesting. And we, you and I, well, certainly I'm a complete geek about these things, but let's not completely uh, bore our audience. But I do think it's a really important thing here, um, which is, and you mentioned this when we were talking uh, previously, that because you're elected via a party list, and at the moment, um, many members of the Senate are elected by first past the post like we do in, in England and for the UK Parliament. But if everyone's elected by a party list, there's a sense in which you owe a deeper allegiance to your party than if you're elected by first past the post. Do, do you feel that yourself as a current list member? Absolutely. I think it's a very different dynamic. So to be clear, the 60 members of the Senate, 40 are elected first past the post and 20 on this proportional basis currently. Um, and when people go to when people went to the ballot box to um, elect me to represent them in their region, um, then my name would have been hidden somewhere in the paperwork. But what they actually did, they put an X in the box next to a political party. Um, and you're right, I feel that with my decision making at times, because often there's a, a personal connection to a decision being made, and rightfully so. But I know that people elected the party to represent them in this place, not necessarily me as the individual. Um, so I'm, I'm actually really pleased to be the policy director of the Welsh Conservatives because perhaps it helps me to shape the policy that I will eventually be looking to uh, agree uh, to, um, which is um, which is a handy way of, of, of arranging things for me. But no, you're right, it, it is a different dynamic um, because it's a party that puts me in a place much more so than an individual, um, which d d certainly feels different. So you are uh, a member of the Senate now and well-established in a significant position within your own party. Um, and you're a Christian. What, what's it like being a Christian in the Senate? Is there is there cross-party fellowship? What does that look like? Yeah, it's, it's really encouraging, actually. Um, you know, there's a group of uh, people of faith, of different faiths um, in the Senate here as well. But there's a, a core of, uh, of people with a, a real deep Christian faith um, as well. And um, we we spend a lot of time together as Christians, actually. So we have a regular time of, of prayer um, um, together and, and fellowship. And, um, and if you think about the size of, of, of this parliament, you know, I say there's only 60 members here. Um, but regularly, um, most weeks, about six or seven of us will be together. So let's say 10% of a parliament coming together to pray. If that was you know reflected in Westminster, that's you know sixty-five-ish mm. people coming together every week to pray, which is really, really significant um, and shouldn't be underestimated. Mm. Um, and we believe in the power of prayer; uh, it makes a difference. And in many times, it's the only thing we feel like you can hang on to, um, especially with events that are happening around us um, uh, at, at the moment. Is you come to prayer and have that time together, uh, and then we also have. And the odd time of fellowship in the evenings as well, um, as as a specifically as a group of Christians, just to share our faith with each other. We're bringing a guest speaker um, to join us for those moments, and so really, really encouraging. Um, and um, I wouldn't want listeners to, which is easy to do, I wouldn't want listeners to despair at perhaps what they see in politics sometimes. And um, there's really good people involved who have, um, you know, Jesus at the centre of what they are about uh, and want to see uh, the kingdom of God, um, you know, established and built in, in, in the UK. 
that is really encouraging for all of us to hear, and uh, and I would echo that very much. You know, you you work across party um, also on a lot of political issues, and one which you and I have worked together is outdoor education. You you've got a um, a cross party supported outdoor education bill before the the Senate. Tell me a little bit about what that's about and and how you came to champion the issue. Yeah, so it's, it's a bill which in UK Parliament would be called a private members bill. Um, so just it, it, in my Parliament, what happens just once a year, a name gets pulled out of the hat uh, and somebody has a chance of making a piece of law. Um, and someone um, about six months prior to me submitting this, uh, Karen just mentioned it to me. Um, mm. It was actually in the car park of my church. There's another <laughs> connection there. Um, but they um, they just said to me, "Have you ever thought about um, you know having a something in place which ensures that every child has the opportunity to um, have a, a residential outdoor education experience?" Um, I think most listeners would know what that means. It's that that thing when you're about ten or eleven years old, you go away with your classmates um, for for a few nights and have that sort of adventurous. Um, time where you're canoeing and abseiling or even just walking in the hills mm-hmm. and and it was one of those things that just chewed around in my mind for a few months um, and then when it came to the moment of you know um, submitting a, a bill idea I thought well, I'll shove that in and just kind of see what happens and yeah my name got pulled out of the hat um, so I very quickly uh, got very passionate about this issue and uh, engaged with all sorts of people and I mean worked on for the last um, 12 months or so. So next month, um, end of November, the, the, the final version of the bill would be laid in a parliament here. Um, and it, as, as you know, people may know, there's different stages how a bill progresses. But I've been very, very um, yeah, fortunate enough to pass that first stage last year of having a majority support of the Senate, um, which for someone in opposition is very, very unusual. Um, so it's been, it's been an interesting journey. And uh, if anyone wants to keep an eye on it, I'd, I'd encourage you to do so because... As you say, Tim, you've got something similar um, uh, making its way through Parliament at the moment. And we have a colleague in Scotland, uh, under Liz Smith, who is also doing something similar. So it's quite an exciting time for outdoor education and outdoor learning generally. It's a wonderful thing. And, and I uh, personally feel very encouraged that you've got the three of us and many others working together to try to achieve this as a kind of response to what feels like a growing epidemic of poor mental health, particularly amongst young people, doing something practical to try and resolve it. Uh, the, Sam, there's so much more we could talk about, um, but I think we've got towards the end of our, our time. It's a massive encouragement to speak to you. You are a huge encouragement and a, and a blessing to us. And we're really grateful to you for your time and for all the work that you do. Oh, thank you, Tim. It's been lovely uh, chatting this morning. Uh, if only we could have longer next time, eh? We'll do it again, yes. Cheers. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer, so please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. This week, Simon has been in touch and says, as a Christian, I find that all the political parties have policies on moral issues which I find unacceptable, or in some cases, morally repugnant. How do you suggest that I and other people in a similar situation choose who to vote for? I've considered choosing the least unacceptable party or the least unacceptable person, not voting or spoiling my ballot, standing as an independent candidate. What are your views and the pros and cons of each option? Can you suggest any other options? Wow. Well, Simon, it's a good question. And the, the first thing to say is all those things that you've considered, they're all reasonable options and alternatives in a, in a democracy. 
I think I'd go back to, you say that um, all the parties have policies you find unacceptable, even morally repugnant. The stench of all our sins rises to heaven. Um, we are all sinners. We are all flawed. And so it should be totally unsurprising then that political parties formed by sinners are also flawed. Maybe they are going to be a, a, a multiplication of, uh, of, of, of flawed, given that there's lots of sinners making them up. I don't say that to be flippant, but to remember that as politicians, we are, even if we're seeking to be faithful to Jesus, we're going to be imperfect. And the people we spend time with in our parties are going to be imperfect. And so it is about making a judgment, in my view, um, that serving and seeking the welfare of the community and the state in which you've been placed is a good thing in line with what the Bible teaches. Seeking to love your neighbour uh, and therefore taking action that will do your neighbour more good than perhaps another course is also a good and worthy thing. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I totally don't agree with the idea of setting up a Christian party, because it would be made up of sinners uh, who would therefore then bring the church and the faith into disrepute. Far better that you've got people who are Christians seeking in their flawed way to be faithful and to try to make sure that the communities that they run and serve are run and served by people who are seeking in their flawed way at least to follow Jesus and therefore doing good in the process. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Let's end our time together this week in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for Sam Rowland. We thank you for his witness. We thank you for his service of his community in North Wales. And we thank you especially for the bill that he's promoting on outdoor education, seeking to come up with a, a meaningful response to the mental health crisis affecting our young people. We pray you bless him in all his work and bless him especially with that bill in the Senate that you might, uh, if it is your will, uh, give it the green light and it may come to pass and that many young people will be beneficiaries of that, Lord, and that your hand would be upon it. And Lord, we now turn our thoughts to the awful crisis in Israel and Gaza. Uh, we pray, Lord, for the protection of all innocents in this conflict. We pray for wisdom for the leaders of Israel, um, for compassion, uh, for justice, uh, and also the same for the leaders of the Palestinian people. We pray that terrorists uh, would be brought to justice. Uh, we pray again that the innocent would be protected. We pray for our own government, that they will be wise in their counsel of the Israeli leadership um, and their leadership of our country. Uh, we pray also for the many communities of the United Kingdom, for Jewish people, for people of the Muslim faith, for people who believe passionately in defending the right of the state of Israel to exist, for those who think also that there should be uh, a free Palestinian state. We just pray for peace. We pray for wisdom. Uh, we pray for forgiveness. Um, we pray for reconciliation. Uh, Lord, we know your hand is in this place at this moment. Um, may it be seen and may you bring justice, wisdom and peace. And we pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premier.plus forward slash A Mucky Business. See you soon.